Hello, this is Quintessence of Dust, Episode 2. I'm your host, Jack Newman. be doing something a little bit different today. Um, I'm going to read from my book. I started writing it a little over a year ago, between a year and two years ago. And uh, I don't know, it really hasn't gone more than where I've written it, so I'm hoping that this can kind of rekindle the thought process and uh, make it available to people, Um, because I think what I said in it is pretty interesting. Um, So the book went through a couple of name changes, and it's still up in the air. Uh, My original title for the book is called Apothegems of Anachronism. Um, This was in essence, a direct response to um, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Um, And just how uh, he uh, focused on the order order aspect of it. I wanted to go against the grain, but in, in essence, it wasn't, it turned out not to be directly related to that. Um, so that's why I later changed the the, um, the title to Modes and Motility. Um, and uh, I think that's, I don't know, a little more prosaic, but uh, a little more accurate to my thought process. But who knows? When it finally gets completed, who knows what the title will be. Anyway, I'll just start right into it. Um, Without further ado, I'm also going to, when I feel it's necessary, pull back from the text um, and just interject whatever I might be thinking at the time, because I did write it a while ago, and so I'm not exactly sure how my mind now will accept uh, what I had written, but um, my guess is for the first couple of chapters, that's probably not going to happen too often, considering I've edited the crap out of them several times. But, never say never. If I feel inclined to say something, I'm going to. And who knows if I'll even get through an entire chapter in this episode. But um, whatever it takes, I'm just going to keep going. And I'm not going to do this uh, continuously for the next couple weeks. I'm still going to interject other episodes that are just uh, my thoughts at the time. Um, But yeah, that being said... Let's start. The concept of free will, free will appears to be central to the way human beings have lived for the entirety of our existence, a precept which is held true for all of written history, and also that intrinsic history which has written the formation of our biology. Now let's think on that statement for a minute. Central to the way human beings have lived for the entire... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with this. I mean... Clearly, free will is important in almost every society, um, as far as I know, and definitely in the one that I know best, which is the Western, Western society. Um, in our society, it's necessary to have free will or else uh, the criminal system breaks down. Um, you know, capitalism itself is, is thrown into question. Um, and so... To throw that away, we do so with at our own peril. I think that also, and and I don't know how much I get into this. I'm pretty sure not much, 
so this is why I'm bringing this up, that the part of this is also in the intrinsic history, which is written to the formation of our biology. Um, and yeah, I know I don't get into this much, but I think that the reason why the capitalist subsist, capitalistic system has become the, uh, the primary system uh, and the most powerful one in, hum in human society in general is because it, mo it most effectively takes advantage of our natural inclinations. This includes free will, but it also includes, um, you know, we, we don't uh, give punitive measure to someone. Um, we don't take away, uh, essentially. You know, a good example would be the bottle bill. Now, you, you could say, you know, hey... Uh, you're, it's a crime to throw bottles into a dumpster instead of a recycle bin or to not put them in their pr proper place. But, you know, that brings up the whole issue of uh, how well are you going to be able to um, control that and who are you going to have to hire that's going to adjudicate that. Um, I mean, cops have enough things under their belt at this point as it is, you know, without something that's a big issue, but is not an immediate and pressing issue. That is the, the, our environment and the cleanness of the, the place around us, given that plastic bottles can be easily broken down and reused if they're given back. So what was our solution for this? Well, we att attach a monetary price to the bottle. And thus, you have a, a, an incentive, a positive incentive to do that. It's not a negative one. It's, you, can, you're, you can throw it away all you want, but in that, you're just throwing away money. And uh, in a capitalist society, that's not generally uh, smiled upon. Um, and, you know, this is how we deal with a lot of things in our society, is we try to find a, a way to incentivize it in the direction that we want it to go. Anyway, further on with the text. We don't know what effect what the effect would be on society if it were accepted into common knowledge that free will doesn't necessarily exist as we commonly think it does? This is a good question. Um, although it's almost it's difficult to, to wrap your head around what may happen um, in a large scale because all I can think of it is in the small scale. Um, as I said in the last podcast, uh, not believing in free will doesn't really change anything. Um, in, in your perspective, because our system is so uh, based on that, that you have to act as if people have free will. And uh, also, as I brought up in the, the last podcast, it, it uh, dovetails into the paradox of complexity. Because if we view people as deterministic systems, then it becomes too complex to try to th figure out or think of all the variables. So in this, the idea of free will is merely a simplification of an overly complex process that we'll never, never be able to fully compute. And thus, we get ourselves out of a needless anxiety. Um, I, I, don't, I can't imagine a society that would exist that based that was based on determinism and not accepting that free will exists, it's hard to imagine that because it's just so rare. 
This is because our interpersonal relationships were built on the idea that we all have free will, and this has been the case for the entirety of known history. We may not explicitly know that this is the case. Regardless, we act based on it being true. The history of Western civil theory holds that the individual is given autonomy to act freely within an acceptable societal context. Whether this model works best because of it it best models a natural human model of incentivization or because it is the most efficient economic model or if those things are the same thing and we have conformed it conformed to it is difficult to say but is probably some combination of the two either way we have adapted so completely to this demand that it has become axiomatic to a certain degree and i am arguing here that it is not necessarily the most accurate truth statement involving the freedom of will Pretty self-explanatory, and I went over that in what I just said. Free will essentially is a question of whether we can hold people to account for their actions, and I think this is a sublimation of the problem of good and evil. So that sentence holds a lot. I don't remember who I heard, heard say this, but that first part I just heard recapitulated by uh, a modern intellectual. I just can't remember where. Um, But essentially, when we look at how free will affects people, it must have been Nietzsche. It's hard to say. I, I'm, I'm not going to say for sure. But is that it's about assigning responsibility to, to things that are negative. And so really what free will allows us to do is create a scapegoat out of someone who we deem did an action that was unpalatable to the social context. This is why it is a submission of good and evil. Um, because we, it is merely the, well, not merely, but it is the assignation of responsibility based on actions. And whether those actions are deemed uh, positive or negative is what we call good and evil. If they're positive, if there's a positive effect that generally can be attributed to them, then people want to assign responsibility to someone um, for their good deeds so that we know that this person more, more often than not wants to cede to what is good or the good. Same with the evil. Although in this case, um, especially in the modern context, the evil is what we far more focus on trying to uh, toy out from people and assign responsibility to because... We want to minimize the effect of people who do evil acts. And we want to minimize the, the ability of people to do that. Which comes into question why, you know... Well, that's a different question, but... Is, you know, the rehabilitation context. And why hasn't it necessarily been... Uh, the crime rate been dropping? You think that if we had this this uh, punitive measure for doing something evil, then um, it, should be, it should be lessening evil gen in general, but uh, not so much. And this is also made further complicated by the fact that breaking the law isn't necessarily evil. I mean, most things you do if you break the law are evil, but there are things outside the context of law that are still evil, but you can get away with. 
in that sense. And the, and on the opposite end, we have no method of incentivizing good action uh, beyond you know beyond the the atheist art or not the atheist but the altruist argument. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's go back into the Freudian slip episode for that one, but. <laughs> But the altruist argument about um, can you do a good act um, without being seen can, is, you know, that, that's what makes it hard to do good things is because you have to have your psychology oriented in some way to allow you to do them or else you only do good acts um, when they have a viable result, which is essentially... Um, when other people see them, and, um, <clears throat> and then it gets complicated because then the good people generally want people who observe to be around them constantly so that they can have comeuppance for their good action. And then it gets into this weird echo chamber part, but I'm not really going to go into that much. I'm just, I was just coming down on how free will can be interpreted as the problem of good and evil in itself. I'm going to go back to the text. This solves the problem of accounting for someone's unacceptable actions by allowing the punitive measures to be executed without guilt by the executors. Basically what I just said. If people were not assumed to be capable of free action, this question would become a lot more gray in how it could be successfully kept in check. The expression of free will came about as a natural consequence of holding people responsible for their actions, or in other words, to be used as a tool to bring about societal control one step removed as to not to be ostensibly reprehensible. This is the societal product of a deeper, older context, and it becomes so instinctive that it is hard to ever pin down the actual source and whether it does or does not exist. Why this is, I will address later in this book in the context of the chapter I will deal with the phrase free will. I don't think this is entirely encapsulated by the idea in that I don't think that all acts of good and evil are limited to actions which deal with free will, but the opposite is true that every instance of subverting free will is in, in this way is either good or evil. Which is mostly a recapitulation of what I just said. Um, it's, you know, the square, uh, rectangle is a square, but the square is in a rectangle sort of relationship here. Is that all, all the acts of good and evil are, you know, sometimes can be seen as deterministic. Because I... You know, I don't think that anyone who truly believes in free will it truly believes in free will as, as it dictates because then you have to believe that any, anything that has a conscious process also has some sort of free will. And, you know, that, there's, there's a sharp divide between humans and animals as we see it. And if, you know, if we... Free will is in some ways an encapsulation of creating distance between us and the animals so that may maybe we could enjoy the fantasy of the fact that determinism isn't dictate, doesn't dictate our every action. But with animals, it's, it's very hard to say otherwise, um, given that they can be uh, reliably um, you know, shown to do certain actions, uh, i.e. behaviorism, uh, B.F. Skinner style. Um, in any case, I'll continue. The forces that conform our, mi conform our minds to believing free will exist are manifold. 
one of which is the sheer weight of our history and the conformity to doing what we have done before, the all-too-comfortable embrace of the habitual you wrote. This is the vast majority of the weight of force keeping the free will box closed. This is why the, the society can at least be posed now because society has never been more incentivized to reinvent itself than it has in modernity. Another force here is that we have a propensity towards believing that we have volition, and that it is, very it is a very psychologically comforting idea that we can choose our own destiny and are not beholden to forces beyond our control. If we were to believe that our lives are boxed up in a series of non-choices that we make, then what is the point of moving on? What is the motive for trying anything at all? There is also an argument that the basis of free will depends on something far more basic and ancestral, that the very concept of complex cognition depends on free will being an operative part of mental manifestation to create the root of motive force. It is all, it is all conjecture to some degree, but if I had to draw a line in the sand and say this is where free will began, it would be with the higher level brain function indicative of its own psyche, of a psyche which can reflect on its own usage. Or, God damn it. I'll, I'll just say that over. It is all conjecture to some degree, but if I had to draw a line in the sand to say, this is where free will began, it would be with the higher level brain function indicative of a psyche which can reflect on its own existence. This is what is meant by the odd usage of the phrase self-consciousness in common parlance. This is also the root of the Christian concept of original sin. This once again is a capitulation to the divide between animals and humans. Uh, it, you know, for the longest time, and even when I was a child, we would believe that humans, one of the things that made us human above and beyond the animal world was, A, our use of tools. Now we have learned in recent years, first with Jane Goodall observing chimpanzees using a stick to get ants out of an ant hole, uh, is the usage of tools. But if anyone has watched Our Planet recently, a series on Netflix that is uh, beautifully narrated, um, then you can see there are several animals that use tools, even fish that use tools. Um, so this is definitely not something that is beholden to us, and I think this is the same thing with a lot of the higher-level mental processes. We see the manifestation of our social grace and uh, ability to be a complete social uh, society, um, but because this is so starkly different from most other animals that we believe that we're the special case. And I think this is, this is probably because we removed all of the other special cases in our uh, comeuppance to being the dominant primate form on the, on the planet. And uh, this is, I think, what the majority of prehistory uh, shows us. Is that, and I'm not saying it's on any archaeological evidence or anything, but just based on how many hominids were found and their, their interrelationships, it, you know... And it's actually recapitulated in the, in the series called uh, Clan of the Cave Bear by Gene Owl. And I also wanted to write about this because I think it's a great idea. But that there were just a myriad of hominid species uh, in prehistory that were just warring it out. And uh, the humans won. And so that's why we don't see anything that's even close to us in mental capacity. Because we had this huge war... And uh, I, I would only assume that we wiped out anything that could pose a threat to us, um, which is the unfortunate manifestation of becoming a higher-level mental uh, creature.
And in this, this is the same way um, in se- if, with self-consciousness. Uh, you know, it was thought before you, you show a cat uh, its reflection in the mirror. It doesn't know what the hell that is. It assumes it's another cat, right? Unlike us, we can know that this, the mirror is merely a reflection showing us back. Um, and there, there is evidence that there are higher level primates that do just the same thing. Um, they realize that they are self-conscious in this way, um, which I think is kind of a misnomer because I don't think being able to recognize yourself in a mirror um, shows self-consciousness. Uh, I think it just shows uh, utility, the utilization of an environmental force to your advantage or to um, help your understanding in a certain way. Now, the root of the, the Christian concept of original sin, now that's a whole different bag of worms. Um, I mean, uh, definitely the idea of original sin is uh, tied in with the idea of free will. Um, because Adam and Eve, they, they get thrown out of the Garden of Eden for eating the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Which essentially, because right now what I've been saying is free will. And so they were given free will, um, but that's what caused them to have this original sin. And essentially what I mean by that, in that sense, is the original sin is everyone is beholden to the forces of society. And if this means that you do something that you don't think is evil, but society does, then you have to pay the price regardless. This is, a, this is what original sin is to me. And uh, not not entirely, not wholly. I think it's far more complex than that. And obviously, I can't say what it would be in one sentence. But I think this is how I view it. Um, outside of the context of the tele- teleological conspiracy, which I hadn't even began to think of in all this. So I'm really, really curious to see how they they correlate with each other, my previous writings and my recent thoughts about teleological conspiracy. In any case, I will continue on with the text. I think that on a base level, most people believe in determinism. All this is going in right in what I was going to say, which I totally forgot I was saying, but I'm going to say it now, even though I'm probably going to say it in the text. But I believe that most people intrinsically know that they are partially deterministic. And I think that no one truly is an avatar of free will. I think everyone believes in some level of soft determination or determinism. What the hell? Um, you know, and necessarily so. I think that um, there's always going to be a seed of doubt, and especially if you look at not what someone intellectually states to you, but how they act. Because I think that's a a far more reliable indicator of someone's uh, internal belief than what they tell you. Because that can be changed at, at a whim. And usually it's done so to uh, bend it more towards your ear to make it easier to hear and less to be argued with. To, you know, there's probably an evolutionary reason why that's the case, but it definitely doesn't make it easier to get the truth. And just a side note, by the way, I've been listening to some of my older podcasts. Um, a helpful hint, just to put, if you haven't done it before, put the speed up to 1.5 because I definitely have a 
a slow way of speaking and it's easier it's easy to understand even when it's uh, sped up so I would encourage people to do that or I can just learn to speak faster I don't know <laughs> I really don't I, I, I don't want to do that I think it would be bad <laughs> anyway I'll continue with this text I'll start over from where I began I think that on a base level, most people believe in determinism, or they act as if they believe, and have done so since the deceleration of religiosity and the rise of a more secular, rational way of thinking. Uh, yeah, I think that this this is true. It's uh, definitely determinism is, um, I think, more secular, more rational, and free will is is inherently linked with religiosity in some sense. Because as I said in the last content, con the last episode, um, that the free will is is the the biggest seed within um, religious thought, and it, it it actually is what drives the teleological conspiracy um, from the bottom. This is because determinism is the natural conclusion of a scientific worldview. The fact that there are forces outside of our control that shape our life is a common assumption of a typical modern. The only way to level this with explainable phenomenon, science, determinism, or unexplained phenomenon, religious metaphysics. Over time, people have gained an intuitive grasp of the former. The hesitance of people's ex explicit grasp of this bears out that there is still a complication with the broad assimilation of such an idea. That is, that if you remove volition from the equation, there is no more morally holding people accountable, or said differently, there is no good or evil. Part of the intricate web of social interactions that becomes a culture is the concept of morality, but that concept necessarily divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed, which is contributing to the negative bias against certain others that are decided based on a seemingly arbitrary measure. This seems to be what central to the production of what we call inequality. And certainly this isn't the only thing that creates inequality, but I think this is a massive part of it. Um, is that we, there's a sliding scale of, of actions that are laudable or non-laudable. And e even within our society now, we, we have these, we have smaller divisions you know we, we should have other concepts other than good and evil i think there's different levels you know i think that there's good actions that are not as good as an obviously good action but are still good in the context but it's more like you, uh five of those equal an actual good action and you know there certainly are n neutral actions but um i think that's part of how we define a society is how we define what becomes good and evil and what can the, what can be relegated to the neutral state because that's just as important um, because then it, there is no overtone of morality involved that 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 action can be seen uh, without and typically it is chained to another motive action that could either be called good or evil and so Really, what good and evil uh, stems from is the root of the motive. And uh, determining that motive is how we determine whether a person did something evil or good. 
Um, and that certainly complicates things and makes it a lot easier for people to manipulate the system to their advantage. And uh, presum presumably that's why it, that mechanism is in there. <clears throat> we'll continue on with the text here. I need to start here at a more basic level, dealing with the essential elements of determinism and improving it in a removed manner, before we deal more with the consequences and the logical conclusions that come from those assumptions. When we think of the ideas of determinism from a first-person, individual, phenomenological perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we see things through our eyes, and the variety of possibilities spreads before us a thousand different possible decisions. I could choose to write this sentence, or I could choose a person to pay a person to drive me to an airport where I can fly me anywhere on the planet, not right now, <laughs> ironically. From there, I could engage in any activity that it would be possible for a person like me to experience. I, for, well, and also that it would have to be either neutral or good actions only because evil will get me locked up. Um, I, for most of my life, felt that this was evidence enough of free will and the ability to choose your own destiny as it were. The sandbox nature of reality was such that to believe that free will didn't exist felt like an existential tautology. How else could we improve our characters and be responsible for the improvement or lack thereof? Um, I, I want to go more into how I came about this thought and the, the progression of my thought process, but I know I, I at least touch on it somewhere here, so I'll continue until after that point, and then I'll explain further. I've contended with the problem, here it is, I've contended with the problems of determinism my entire life. It presented itself early in my life and has been a question I've been regularly cognizant of. If I choose to raise my hand right now or wave it around or make a series of random vocalizations, then that would prove I have the will to do that for no reason. The problem with that statement is the no reason part. Because if the tr is there truly no reason? People act as if the reason appears from, a, from the conscious state. And this, I believe, is the explicit definition of free will. If you can choose your actions from a seeming endless list of poss possible actions, from those that cause immediate and powerful gratifications, from those that would prove suicidal or disastrous to our loved ones, then what was the fact determining our actions at this point? Yeah. Um, this, is, this is why I believe that uh, the empiricism, uh, as I said in my last episode, directly relates to the idea of determinism. Because uh, if your thoughts co come before, uh, if, if your thoughts come after experience, in that, well, if, if the motive comes before the conscious uh, thought, um, that's determinism and that's empiricism. If you think and then the motive is created, then that would be um, rationalism or free will, uh, necessarily, I think, that those two things must be. Um, and so the, it boils down to the question of uh, our thoughts is knowledge a priori to experience. Um, and I have to, and I, I'm not going to go further into this because I know I did this way last episode a bunch, but I have to agree with Nietzsche. I do not think that our thoughts 
produce our motives. I think our motives produce our thoughts. Uh, on with the text. The human mind and other sentient creatures have a natural hierarch hierarchy of action that they exhibit out of a con the continual need to conserve resources, and they do not use them for actions that are meaningless. An easy way for evolution to do this was to link inextricably our minds to things, causation and motility. Every action requires a deduction at some point, or an induction. Whether this is from data of our senses or from thoughts we have, said differently, we don't see objects as objects as such, but we see them as potentialities of action. This is basically straight from Jordan Peterson. I should, uh, <laughs> should definitely have a, a, state, a statement by him there instead of by me because I'm taking it basically directly from him. I would never raise my hand without a, without a reason, and if I did, it would be as if another person did it. Anyone who has experienced involuntary action, i.e. vomiting, becoming unconscious, or shivering, knows that when the body acts without consciousness telling what to do, and knows how, and knows how much volition over this action, action is active when the action is taking place, which is a zero. You, you have no choice when you throw up, it just happens. And there's kind of this dissonance that happens when something like that happens, that, you're, that you are like, well, this is a problem. My body is reacting without me consciously trying to control it. Um, obviously, the flip side to this would be breathing, which is kind of interesting considering that we can usurp conscious control over it, but generally it is completely unconscious. And once our consciousness la uh, goes away from focusing on control of it, then it lapses back into its normal pattern. Where was I? This is a concept that I think is something like physiological determinism. It is the fact that the locus of control of our being is within our mind space and creates a necessary duality between actions that become so instinctively locked in our biological system that it doesn't bother with running the problem through the conscious state, that it just engages it automatically. Um, referencing my last episode, this is the System 1 of Kahneman, and... As I related it, this is the central uh, part. This is controlled by the right hemisphere. Much of contending with health is increasing the communication between our cognition and our physical states. And it might be an example of how new consciousness is to nature, that the communication between the two is so rudimentary. We have to employ some extravagant manner to measures to circumvent these experiential instantiated and evolutionary instantiated adaptions. As is clear uh, by our inability to get at purely objective information. Uh, this, is, this, is the, this is what we have to do to get at these problems, is we have to strive against subjectivity itself, and we have to realize that the thing we have to make the systems to best predict what will objectively happen in the world and you know try to relate those to people as much as possible because the more it can be tested and the more it can be individually verified the more uh, true it's going to seem um, in both senses of the the word true as I explained last episode continue with the text 
This leads to psychological determinism, which determines why I chose to raise my hand when I did raise it at the time I did. If volition told me to raise my hand, at, at what point is there not a psychological reason for doing so? Psychological determinism means that thoughts can never happen in a vacuum. There is never a thought we have that isn't directed at something, nor a thought that didn't spring from other thoughts which sprung from baseline biological assumptions made by your body. This, it goes right back into what I was saying last podcast. Um, that, uh, especially with Freudian slips, because uh, that the content that is spewed out... C- and same with the dream, that there's nothing in the mind that we can throw away and say that that was an error. Um, unless there, you know, unless there are extreme um, distortions on the mind, which uh, that goes into a whole different set of problems that I'm not going to be dealing with here. This is a method that becomes the most effective way to affect change outside of the scope of actions which circumvent consciousness. This is a lot like how a dictionary functions and how we learn words. The dictionary explains the definition of words by using more basic words that point to the nuance of the particular term in question. Eventually, you have to use a baseline of understanding that have real-world reference. This is a lot like how the mind makes use of the conscious process. In a way, a lot of our ideas of utopia have to do divorcing our consciousness from the determinable traits imposed on it by living in a physical system. Higher level motivations default upon lower level ones. Eventually, the level gets to the point where we don't have to waste any mental energy on determining which is the more preferable path because one leads directly towards something we desire or away from something punishing. So that's the the, um, pain pleasure, drive, as put forth by Freud, as well as, hold on, I just had it, as well as what I was saying about uh, Kahneman last time, and that the system two defaults upon the system one, and this is to, to conserve mental energy as much as possible. And uh, I I just want to bring this up because I think it's a good point. Um, It's something Jordan Peterson talked about. Um, It has to do with... Hold on. Thank God. Okay. It has to do with him uh, rallying against the the pain-pleasure principle by Freud. And he he made a really good point. And I'm going to try to think of why I may or may not believe it. Because um, uh, this, this will change how this book is written if it's one way or the other. So he brought up the fact that, A, um, the Bible, well, we have to make this assumption about the Bible to, to think in this term, is that the Bible is a condensation of societal thought throughout time uh, that has been turned into... You know, basically a truth, a truth statement about society because it's been so cross-referenced between different authors and, and read by so many people. And he says that 
and so that being that um, the Bible is a reflection of a certain level of folk psychology at that time, we can then we have to ask the question in terms of the the pleasure and pain principle. Why would there be a hell? Because there, or why why is there? Or, you know, not, not even that, because that, that can be answered pretty easily. But why are there things in the Bible that are just straight up unsavory? Well, I think that the people in, in, who composed the Bible, the people who thought of the, how the stories would be read by the people who read them, realized the fact that they needed to appeal to realism to some degree. Because if there was no appeal to the real world, in, in a sense that uh, it would lose people, just like, you know, a pure fantasy book, if there was no reference to our actual emotions, would just be lost. Um, and that's why they have those evil things in the Bible that have no apparent, uh, you know, affiliation with going away from pleasure, or away from pain and towards pleasure. Um, because... To some degree, there are, there are things in the world that uh, are outside of that. We just try to orient orient our in, our our minds towards one or the other. But there are aberrations within that process that are uncontrollable. This is why I think that those stories were in the Bible. <sighs> so here we go again. There is no random thought that doesn't come from a source of either sensory data or remembered sensory data or its abstraction. Our memory is only a kernel of what we can bring up in our, to our consciousness at any given time, when its much more ob obvious function is to provide a collection of data on which to abstract situations which are unfamiliar to us and increase psychological utility. This may be one of the things that happens when we get older and learn the lessons of life, it's not because we can more reliably call on memories that give us an explicit sense of how to deal with the problem, although we do that too. It is more a use for making large chunks of data more palatable by categorizing them, a lot like a data compression program on a computer makes sm files smaller by providing subroutines on finding and, finding and tagging redundancy in a program's code. So when I tell you to think of a random thing or try to do it myself, my mind automatically abstracts something whether it's something I associate with random or the word thing as opposed to person or place or coniferous tree. That abstraction is by no means conscious. And really, only by reverse engineering the thought process I can realize why I abstracted it like I did, a.k.a. what I just talked about about empiricism and Nietzsche. The problem for me is that when I apply this process of reverse engineering, thinking about where my thoughts come from by the th thinking of the causal chain of mental processes that brought about the state, that I can never find something that didn't come logically from these said mental processes. This is why I believe in determinism, because I I can't ever see in my life an action that was dictated in my life or in anyone else's that either comes from this abstracted reality or, which I didn't bring this up in the book, but this is also part of it, or, hold on, I lost it. <laughs> well, I'll come back to that.
problem for me is that when I apply the process of reverse engineering, thinking about where my thoughts come from by thinking of the causal chain of mental processes that brought this state about, that I can never come up with something that didn't come logically. Okay, so, or it devolves into the paradox of complexity. Because either we have a causal chain or we have an appeal to a chaotic n unknowing. Um... And this definitely needs to be thought about more by me, but uh, because I, you know, I we can look back at all our actions, and I think that the more inter introspection that we do, the more that we can see ourselves. As I said in the last in the last podcast about it being a strength, the more that we do that, then the more we can realize the chains of our ca causation of our motives um you know i think this is partially why free will is so powerful is because uh people you know necessarily want to lack that level of introspection um you know they they don't want to think that far ahead because they want to be able to do possibly evil actions without considering them or taking a personal hit on their pride or, you know, their perceived benevolence. So I will continue after that. Let's go. If a given input is unfamiliar, then our mind approximates a best guess and gives us what we conclude about said input because of the physical nature of the neurons in our brain. In fact, this estimate can go so far as to constraining our perceived sensory experience or memory, causing us to make sense of the given noise, much like when we see f we can find faces in clouds. Um, yeah, the, if there's too much noise in a signal, we try to remove the, the signal from the noise, but sometimes it's just noise. This could partially explain why reality can seem to be mutable because focus requires us to lose the resolution of the periphery, which allows us to see it as being part of the broader group of categorization. Once again, a system one, system two Kahneman statement. And exactly what I talked about last time with the illusion of the phobia of the eye. If a neuron is causally linked to another, then it will be more likely to affect ones closer to it. This is a process that allows individual nodes to work in cooperation with the system as a whole and condense data even further. This process is key to the creation of the neural net form of programming, which has revolutionized the field of artificial intelligence. This is also what allows us to jog our memory when we can't quite think of something. Just think of, you know, when you can't remember a word and it's on the tip of your tongue. You have to think of things that are related. And, you know, usually people outside of us can help us out by pointing to something that may, may be related or, and may not. And it becomes this odd game of charades or, uh, you know, something of the, not necessarily charades, but something like that, where we're trying to guess and we, because the person doesn't know itself that so we're both trying to guess at it and you're trying to sweep the, the, your neural net to see anything that might be close to the particular idea you're trying to, to light up. And if it does, then we can kind of go, you know, hot, cold until we get, get it. And then you, you remember it, you know, anyone who's tried to think of something 
and can't remember at the time, but remember several seconds later, um, you know, can attest to this. Or if you can't remember at that time and then later on, then something peaks your memory and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the same thing, you know, that you didn't knew didn't find that causally, but then you you remember it in your mind that you were trying to find a causal link, and when it comes in, then it provides the link, and then you remember. I've done that multiple times in my life. We think of things that are causally associated with the thing. We think of categorizing details that will allow us to better narrow the search parameters. In the choice to move the hand example, I have never gotten to, to a level from, at which there is not internal volition. Whether from physiological or psychological utility, it seems to be conserved. There is always a reason, whether it was to prove a point about advocacy of free will or some spasm of internal constituents that at the cost of increasing discomfort were moved to make such a motion or any other perverse or complicated set of justifications. The point being is that they do exist at some level, and I believe if anyone is thinking critically about their own experience, aka introspection, they will say the same. A key word here is, con is conservation, and the fact that motives themselves get conserved as if they were a measure of potential energy. This leads to the conclusion that perhaps attention itself is, is in a zero-sum game with some other baseline biological imperative. And one function of consciousness is to provide a comprehensible overarching narrative. That is for certain. And that uh, for that, read Maps of Meaning. Because uh, that fully convinced me about the, our, our need to live in the form of narrative. On with the text. I can't remember the exact moment when I was completely convinced... But I can say that I spent most of my life as if we had free will. Perhaps it was that I was always suspicious of the mind trap that believing in free will will cause. That if you followed it to its natural conclusion, it justified the propensity for society to put people in positions so fraught with personal distress that they had to reconstruct their interpretation of reality to a cor corrupt degree in order to balance the ledger of sanity. Or perhaps I exalted in the freedom in believing that you choose your own destiny. I felt... What I believe many feel, and what is still a puzzle for me to think on, it has to do with the fact that most of the areas of contention in our society have to do with that very real and often very justifiable emotions that we feel when dealing with certain ideas. This is one of those very problems. There is something pastoral and clean and virtuous about free will. Deep down, the pride of, of the things that we have done outweighs the horrible things we could wash away by disposing with it. Or maybe there is just a hope aspect that the spectrum of morality was there to provide a goalpost and eventually, with enough effort, the greatest possible good could be achieved. So this is where I'm going to go on a tangent because this is a big problem to me. Um, it's because is not the implication of morality uh, solid and real within us, like when we feel sympathy, like real heart-wrenching sympathy, is that a bastardization of our mode of process? Now, I'm clearly saying it is, because there all are, but this is where it gets really hard for me to say, because I have emotions too, you know? I'm not just a shell. And, you know, if I look at it in the terms of the hemispheric, 
uh, I'm really thinking with my left brain here when I'm considering these ideas. Um, I'm assimilating, trying to be as objective as possible. Um, but the, the prospect of trying to remove morality or, you know, anything such as a powerful, good emotion like sympathy and love, you know, or even removing the negative ones, you know, wanting to rally against someone who's evil, uh, you know, disgusting at someone's improprietous actions. These are things that, you know, because, as I said before, we're living in the form of a narrative that we need to measure and that to just the thought of trying to excise that from experience seems monstrous. Like, you know, and I, I know I'm going to bring this up because I already thought of the line and I basically just said it, it and it's coming up real soon, I, I assume, uh, because as I say in the text, if you believe this, you not only, you know, you may not only do you seem like a monster, you are one. Um, because that's, you know, that in its essence is an evil action. It's trying to remove sympathy, trying to remove love. And I think that these are important and, uh, I really don't know how we could live without them. So maybe there's always going to be an appeal against determinism. Maybe determinism must remain in the left hemisphere because that is where it can be utilized without, you know, making us seem like we're automatons. Because, you know, even the, the most objective of us don't want to seem like we're automatons. I certainly don't, you know. <laughs> this is where it's like, you know, gets back into the first time that Sam Harris had Jordan Peterson on his, his program and they discussed the intrinsic meaning of truth in that, you know, Sam Harris in the sentence was very left brain and was agreeing with what I'm saying in my text that, but all he goes away from this because he assumes that there's a, there's a baseline of morality that we can latch onto and that we are trying to minimize suffering across the board. But Jordan Peterson disagreed because he said that there is no truth that can be disbarred from our physical form. And he referred to this as being a Newtonian problem in that we're looking at it from a physics calculation aspect and a Darwinian problem that we're looking at through the lens of our biological uh, instantiation. Anyway, let's see where I was at. Deep down, the pride of the things that we have done outweighs the horrible things. Oh, there we, I've said that already. Or maybe there is just a hope aspect that the spectrum morality was there to provide a goalpost, and eventually, with enough effort, the greatest possible good could be achieved. At the individual level, free will breaks down, not because the world isn't the aforementioned sandbox of possibilities, a.k.a. Leads, leads into the paradox of complexity, but because every choice has its roots deep within our unconscious mind, wired to our body in a, in a primal way, causing us to make post hoc rationalizations and attempt to bury our primeval past. This uh, empiricism, once again, we attempt to reorient reality to not shed any bad light on things that our bodies tell us unerringly to obtain. 
We could choose other than what we choose, but why would you want to choose other than what you want would want? If you are thirsty, what do you want? A glass of water or a handful of salt? There is an extremely complex triage for our actions, delineating probabilities in a pragmatic sense. But when given a choice, do you not know automatically what you prefer? Isn't the baseline plot of every emotionally valid story contending with calculations, calculating these problems, that such calculation reveals the constituents of our character? Even when given a choice between two things that, by the honest assessment of your unconscious calculus, are completely equal in that they could offer risk versus reward, we tend to fixate on something that is seemingly innocuous, some point that is so subtle as to be comical if revealed to be the thing that swung our decision. Usually our decisions, especially the important ones, have far more than two possible ends, which makes the problem more intractable to comprehension and far more susceptible to abstraction. I found that upon sufficient introspection, I could find no action or metaphysical inclination that didn't have its own particular justification, and I don't think that this is a state that is particular to me. My very last seed of doubt and determinism contained in the extension of this argument by way of extending this idea into time. So I'm going to go back to what I said. I could find no action or metaphysical inclination that didn't have its own particular justification. And the reason why I think this is cool is because uh, Sam Harris um, agrees with in my idea of determinism, which is fairly rare in the intellectual world, to be honest. Um, you know, people like Daniel Dennett believe that. People like Sam Harris, uh, the neurologist Robert Sapolsky, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts. Um, and to me, the Sam Harris thing is really cool because part of his gig is uh, intense introspection by way of meditation. Um, and I've done meditation in the past. I, I think I've done pretty well at it, I believe. I haven't done it for an extended period of time, though. Um, and this is because I don't necessarily agree with the benefits of it. Um, and because I generally think I'm pretty severely introspective beyond that without having to sit and consider. Um, obviously, in, in meditation, you're, you're trying to avoid thinking altogether. It's not just sitting and thinking as in the Western concept of meditation, but um, it is, you know, in, in Vipassana, you're trying to uh, continually clear the mind of abstract thought. And the great thing about uh, when I first began to meditate is because I automatically did that. And I, because there was all, there's always been this point in my mind where I, I felt it was a challenge that could I wipe away the contents of my consciousness. And uh, I did, or I tried, and I understand the, the standpoint of the Vipassana, and I agree with it. And I agree with the statement that Sam Harris made, is that you're sitting there, you're concentrating, your mind wanders, and then you realize that your mind wanders, and so you bring it back to center. And this process is like a mental push-up. Um, although I think that where I disagree with Sam Harris in this is the implications of what that push-up actually builds as far as muscles in the mind. Um, obviously, as an, an analogical muscle. <laughs> so, then, we're talking about extending 
uh, determinism into the far future. Because to me, there's if you're thinking about individual and you know, very you're not you're not projecting into the future. Um, it seems like uh, it's pretty easy, and and you know. Even even when I think about it now, it's pretty easy in the long term too to consider this if you're truly believing in empiricism. Because even when you sit here and you're like, "Well, let me read this and then I'll get into that," because it deals with what I'm saying. Altering the trajectory of your destiny, a problem that every person has to deal with, was the last refuge of free will for me. This involved the highest level functions of people and was the penultimate choice point of unfolding the unfolding of one's life. If it was my last day of high school and I was the valedictorian and any path, or uh, supposedly a really, really good high school, and any path that I could choose is conceivably possible from being a lowly dishwasher all the way up to the limits of human specialization, scientist, doctor, politician, a actor, musician, etc. Isn't this diffuse enough of a decision to escape the internal grasp of determinism, or is it just of a complexity that I couldn't calculate in a more succinct way as I could with a more local example? Yes, I'm, al I'm already uh, accepting the dictates of the paradox of complexity. Right there. Beautiful. I'm going to continue. Our minds are part of a physical universe and as such are subject to the same limitations of any physical system. We can only output what has been input. There is a complex system for ranking what inputs are more important to remember and it gets more complex from then out. This doesn't change that we can't create ideas spontaneously. We amalgamate and morph previous things. There is a conservation of thought that is what people meant when they say there are no new ideas. You can alter the form of it just like in conservation of matter and energy. It can change form. It just cannot be created or destroyed. I cannot just spontaneously come up with words that I have never even heard of or seen before. And if I did, they would be meaningless to anyone. Like seeing a sheet of ice crack, the permutations of the patterns that these exhibit are uncompre uncomprehendingly per complex, but they still have to follow the rules of physical universe. They don't happen outside of the ice, as it were. And this is a beautiful lead into what I was going to say. Um, you have to consider the paradox of complexity when you're thinking about this, and you also have to consider the dictates of empir empiricism. Uh there is, there's always going to be a choice point at the point that you make a determination about your future. In, in the example, if I was a valedictorian and I was choosing what profession I want to go after, well, it's not going to come out of a vacuum. It's going to come out of a series of predetermined judgments that I've already made. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that maybe I don't know what I want. And so... I can, you know, I'll either default upon a lower level abstraction or I'll search for what I want. But even then, the this, this search has to be anticipated by some other mode of structure. But within that search, I could find something that more clicks towards my, uh, my chosen path. I think this is why it is, commonly, it is common for students to not enter college with a major in mind because this is, they, they, this is where they're allowing their their minds to get into the choice point and to give themselves as much information about different choice points. So that, the, as I said before in the previous podcast, 
that if a, a word that we want or an idea that want, that we want to that changes an idea that changes our mind is when it falls into place into a structure that was already pre-existing it and allowing for the space to exist. And so when it falls in, there's a click of ah, this is this is what it happens. It's because it surpassed the threshold of the connections that we require for it to become a decision that or an idea that we actually hold. Um, and it's the same way with if we're choosing a future path for ourselves. And, uh, you know, anyone who's done that, who's, who's been like, I'm going to, and hopefully you have, because if you're not, you're probably a big loser like I am. But uh, hopefully you're, if you project your idea and be like, okay, here, here's something I want to be. And you go along that, and then, you know, maybe that changes. Maybe the the things that you have to do, you know, you learn more about it, and you realize that it's not as hand-in-glove fit as you thought, or that it was, it was mirroring more of an expectation than a reality. And uh, this, this is why we change our minds. This is why, you know, we do things differently. This is why we, you know, put the brakes on something that we thought was a great idea and change. On with the text. I feel like this was the causality of my thought process concerning determinism. Perhaps there are further levels of bias which cause me to think in this manner. The further level to this, which is far more insidious and difficult to consider on a larger scale, is the problem of morality which I brought up above. The few that more or less agree about the way I conceptualize determinism don't deal with this, what I take to be the natural and devastating conclusion. This isn't the only thing to be gleaned from the fact that free will is illusory, but I think the most pertinent to how it will affect us on a regular basis. Oh, shit. Just lost my place. Hold on. Look for the word pertinent. There it is. The most pertinent to how it will affect us on a regular basis. One thing that I have to be careful about is the use of this strategy because it is one of those various failures of humans that we give in to confirmation bias and use slippery logic to push ourselves back into the position that is the lesser of two evils. This is similar to Nietzsche's thought on master and slave morality. And this type of reasoning is slave morality or rationalizing from a position of weakness. This is a problem that we all have to deal with and I think that I will expand more about acts of self-deception later in this book which I don't think I have yet. <laughs> but all, all of this, really, all, this whole thought process came out of an effort to avoid self-deception. Uh, um, because, you know, that's necessary to reach the deeper levels of introspection, I believe, uh, is to not only deal with your own uh, self-deception, but to action to make actionable strategies that avoid self-deception. This is one reason why I don't believe in karma. You know, I don't, I'm not looking at it from a metaphysical perspective on whether or whether or not it exists. Um, and certainly if you think about it in psychological terms, as in, you know, you do an evil act and you know you did it, uh, and it sticks with you, and that, that certainly is the case. But, you know, the obvious conclusion the obvious caveat to that idea is that there's there most of the people who do evil acts don't think they're doing evil as i said before they have a uh, dis, 
they remove themselves one step from and you know then they're no longer the evil person um you know and oftentimes this comes from uh adopting a semi-deterministic outlook and oftentimes it comes from uh being you know not looking at the instantiation of our beliefs but looking at the conscious locus that's that's that we call free will and uh i don't believe in karma because i think it's too easy for someone to say well the world is not doing me a wrong so what i must be doing now is not evil or in fact is good and vice versa if you're doing something that is undoubtedly evil and the world isn't punishing you then it's easy to say that this wasn't really an evil act um which allows for that level of self-deception, which is why I think we have a folk notion of, of karma that is even outside the dictates of Buddhism. If you talk to any Christian, they'll believe, they believe in, you know, the action-reaction idea um, because, the, you know, <laughs> the conception of their personal idea of justice is uh, part of the God that they're building in their head, and therefore they're conducive to it. On with the text. Central to determinism is the presumption that without volition you cannot make moral judgments, and therefore morality as we know it doesn't exist. Volition is central to the act of evil, and to be able to universalize the concept of punishment, you have to picture the person doing an evil act, knowing the suffering that punishment may cause, yet choosing to do it nonetheless, because the person deserves recompense. So not only not only is, um, this isn't part of the text of me talking, but not only is not only is someone who does an evil act evil, but we have to determine they did it consciously. Um, and this gets into some very sticky situations because then it's only the people like uh, not even Ted Bundy because Ted Bundy himself denied everything. Um, he only he only revealed his what he did uh, through inferences. Um, mainly because he was trying to reduce his charge and uh, extend his stay on death row by giving up the positions of the bodies of the people he killed, but he still denied that he did it, which, um, yeah, that's, that takes a special level of, uh, of abstraction there. But there's people who, like uh, Gary Gilmore, um, another murderer from that time who was high profile, the difference between uh, him and Gary Gilmore was Gary Gilmore wanted to die. He would, and you know, I don't think it's because he introspected to the point that he realized he did an evil action. Because I don't think anyone who's evil does that. I think everyone who's evil, you know, has a justification for it. And if they are, if anyone's, you know, and there are people who do say that they are evil, they're doing that as a ploy. You know, not not as a, it's a it's a it's a last resort strategy. It isn't like they actually believe it. I guarantee you that they don't. So where was I?
Solution is central to the act of evil. To be able to universalize the concept of punishment, you have to picture the person doing an evil act, knowing the suffering punishment may cause, yet choosing to do it nonetheless because the person deserves recompense. The immoral act is evil in that it is culturally reprehensible, and we act upon in the fullest extent. Just because there is no good and evil outside of the cultural lens doesn't mean that there is no hierarchy that varies or that your actions don't change your place therein. This is where you, you know, the limits of determinism really don't change your, the way you act. Um, because you know, good and evil and free will are real concepts. And if you just go around saying that, oh, I don't believe in that, that's not going to help you if you end up in a prison cell for 100 years. There is still jockeying for position. However, what I'm speaking of is universal morality. What I'm saying is more or less the common knowledge thought of karma. That is, if you do evil things, that evil things will be done to you or good for good. Certainly there is a level of karma involved when a perpetrator or of an act feels bad about what he has done and is subconsciously aware of the levels he is willing to go into in bad faith and will accrue his allowance of stress as a result. There is not force and I don't think that's as relevant because I don't think many people, um, when they do an evil act, don't have a ready justification for it. But that's why we have such, um, you know, uh, standards throughout societies so that even if the, the action of the evil perpetrator is shoved to the unconscious, they still know that what they did was bad, and this is where karma becomes actionable. This is what I'm talking about here. There is not a force in the universe that judges someone based on our system of ethics, just like we shouldn't judge other animals for being car becoming carnivorous predators. Like the tree landing in the forest, if someone does evil where they are invisible, even to themselves, does anybody hear? We feel these things to be disgusting as they are because par part of the social evolution of man has to do with repurposing previous systems of bodily control of consciousness. Killing may have been an effective strategy for non-social creatures. It had been instantiated in all DNA before the proliferation of complex forms of social interaction. When it became unsustainable to have the primal system of fight and flight, we had to subvert it by creating a new social technology, anathema. Perhaps there were some series of events in our evolutionary history where, where the physiological response of disgust became linked with social taboo. We have been conditioned to believe since it is, an, it is evocative of a specific un, autonomous response that it is as inextricable as culture. We have learned in recent decades that even the most foundational structures of ethics can be reoriented. And I think the future problem of morality will have to do with how we can create, how we can shift these forces without creating tremors, which could cause permanent fissures. Although I've been using evil here a lot, good can be interchangeable in the same way. Good is good when other others see it, which is why people have the habit of virtue signaling, or more innocently, people telling you ostensibly when they have done you a kindness. We know by instinct that a good deed done in a vacuum is meaningless insofar as it doesn't directly change. It affect change on our psyche. Good acts are positive if they are observed, but has no other obvious utility. 
Good acts in this sense are tools for social maintenance and are the correlates to the evil anathemas. Your goodness is a measurement of your ability to transform your physical urges into societally acceptable actions. Good itself is merely a culmination of the good traits that are the apex of the goal of a social cohesion and safety within a social system. God is a system of morals. If God is a system of morals, then Jesus is the obligate culmination of all virtue, the penultimate role model for the society, the socially cohesive individual. This is found to be utterly impossible expectation upon humankind. Thus, he is ritualist. Rich, oh my God, I'm just gonna say that over. This is found to be utterly to be an utterly impossible expectation upon humankind. Thus, he is ritualistically sacrificed to save mankind, or for allowed the, the forgiveness of sin. Yeah, that's that is a great freaking point. I'm gonna sit down. <clears throat> and yeah, that's that's why the, the central tenet of Christian morality is the sacrifice of the Son of God. Morality is regulated by the fact that we have to set up society so that you are forced to do as the Romans do when dealing with a given culture. You have to follow its dictates or face being ostracized. As all good 19th century anthropologists have taught us. If we use another saying that has to do with Romans, leave what is to God, what to God, what is God's, and to Caesar, what is Caesar's, implies a separation of church and state in our souls, so to speak. There is a wisdom in not conflating universal morality with practical morality. You face being ostracized even for saying morality doesn't exist because the natural inclination is for people to make the connection between time spent on a concept and the and the building of some internal mental distress. Just as I said above, so that you don't reap the physical consequence of doing something against your moral compass. Understandable, and if you take what that to mean that because of what I said about psychological determinism being a zero-sum game, that it, that it is unavoidable, I will grant you that to some degree. This gets into my thoughts on realism versus salience, which is the subject of my next chapter. In any case, this makes it very difficult to accurately communicate this thought, and thus is why it seems so rare and resisted by society. I'll go more into that in the teleological conspiracy part, because it definitely is different now, in my mind. Uh, although, same, to, to some degree, but different. The argument, when limited to the scope of an individual philosopher not deciding from a hypothetical blank slate, is that a morality is something that should exist and therefore institute a system of axioms that guide their actions based on which actions do or don't cause societal anguish. Uh, this to me seems a kind of common knowledge um, about philosophy. And it's, in my sense, it's, the, it's really the first meditation upon philosophy. Um, to me, is the implement, you know, how, how can you implement this philosophy to all? Is your philosophy going to be a universal philosophy in that it's instantiated by every individual itself? Or is it just your philosophy and everyone else may be damned? Um... And I think it has to be the former because the latter assumes that maybe you're part of a uh, simulation, uh, Truman style, where every other instance of a person is merely 
a reflection of something and you're the only conscious system. Um, and I think that's just a, a naive way to view the world. Um, and then therefore I think that the logical conclusion is you have to build your philosophy based on what other people's philosophies would be in the world. Um, and this is actually what I think caused the idea of the Republic as put forth by Plato, the idea of the penultimate goal of society being, being the philosopher king. Um, this is why I think that Socrates was misunderstood because he was speaking in terms of how a philosophy can be actionable to a society, not necessarily what he truly believed himself. Um, and there's a very big difference in this. And there's a very big difference in my philosophy in this sense too, because as I stated, as this whole chapter has been about, is how society will accept the idea of determinism and why it's so resistant to it. Um, and so I'm trying to bridge the gap between individual and societal philosophy and um, because, it ha because it has to be the same at some point. And this is why, you know, we have to find a philosophy that is a universal one. And that, that applies to everyone. Um, and the reason why this seems like a, a crazy pipe dream is because it's nearly impossible. As we all come from different cultures, as I just stated, about the hypothetical anthrop anthropological idea in that we have to make our morals relative to our position in our culture, because all cultures are different. But that's going to change one day because the world, the culture of the world is going to become the culture. And therefore there has to be universal morality, universal philosophy. I'm going to check the time. Probably well over an hour. Oh yeah, holy shit. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to continue because I'm almost done, but damn i got to stop interjecting because I'm at an hour and a half. It's going to take forever to upload. <laughs> Which isn't really a problem. I'm just, yeah. I don't mind it being long. Yeah, and... Uh, you can make this decision arbitrarily based on your own predilections and how we could come to the, some con consensus about the optimal state of human existence is completely left untouched. Beyond this, the first and major problem is whether this is a morality that extends to the rest of the human race. I would say, since we are talking about universal morality, this has to be a given. Yet you run into some obvious large-scale problems. How can you describe dictates that are so precise as to be taken for granted and instituted by the entire human race? To what scale do we run the simulation and to what purpose? Well, my answer to this is that the simulation itself is, is merely a, um, a, a, a thought exercise. It's really not meant to be actionable. Um, really what philosophy is meant to do is to give you a platform of, of a thought that's rational. Um, so you can use it to justify your actions in, in a certain sense. And so everyone, when they're reading a philosophy such as Socrates, Phaedo, they're picking and choosing the portions that, that seem important to them and leaving out what may seem irrelevant. Um, and I do this too, uh, especially now when I read a book, I 
try to remember the, the spots that are relevant to my thought process and I tend to glance over the other spots. Um, for example, I've been reading Master and His Emissary for quite some time now. I finally got to the second part where Ian McGillcrest uh, references how his idea of the left and right brain division affects our world as a whole. And I think this is greatly interesting, but definitely not as, as pertinent to my ideas as what his, uh, his thoughts about the neurological aspects of our brain uh, were. But that might change. We'll see. I mean, I'm not going to stop reading it. Back to the text. People have made, have made claims to baseline axioms of morality. Oh, I wanted to bring up just for a second here. I'm going to take a tiny break. And then I'll be back. Alrighty, I'm back. So, what I wanted to bring up was the fact that I've been using the term morality quite a bit at the end part of this paragraph. Which is ironic considering I've been railing against morality the whole time. But I'm, I'm really using this as a... Uh, as the same thing as what I mean by building a personal philosophy. Um, because in, in essence, it's going to be a moralization. And like I said, unless you're a hard determinist, as hard as it can possibly be, and you're essentially a computer at that point, then, there, then there's not going to be morality interjected, but everything's going to be pure utility. But like I said... We're in the awkward position as human beings of maybe never fully getting there, which I, I really don't disagree with. And maybe that's why we need artificial intelligence as the counterparts. Um, but I think that's what makes the idea of AI so intractable is that we can't imagine what their motivations might be other than what we program them to be. Because if we assume that, hey, we start this system where we have this very strict set of motive, motives in, installed within it, and that it develops ulterior motives that we didn't control, then that's where the problem lies. But what motives would they have? All of our motives are physically instantiated, as I've been stating this whole time. Anyway, I'll continue. People have made claims to the baseline axioms of morality, such as a logical fact of our consciousness as a logical fact of our consciousness is to optimally minimize suffering, i.e. Sam Harris, and to some extent Jordan Peterson also said this, um, which is laudable, but here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why I, I have problems with it. Clearly, this is well-intentioned and evokes sympathy, and to, and to argue against it doesn't only seem monstrous, it is. However, however, it is an arbitrary maxim that is evoked in a genial search for a baseline of ethics. When we hear this sentiment evoked, and it had never been in more precise terms than to lessen suffering, automatically you add the qualifying word to maximally lessen suffering. Then you get into a very interesting territory, as you obviously have a vested interest in minimizing your suffering maximally. And to what extent are you willing to subject others to suffering to more effectively minimize yours? For example, would you live in hell so everyone could live in heaven? Um, man, what was that book called? It's another Ian. Damn it. 
Sur it's called surface detail. And ironically, another person named Ian uh, lent it to me, and it was really amazing. But a part of the book, spoiler alert, is the idea of certain uh, AIs going to a hell planet and what that means and whether you could go to hell voluntarily. Like, what's the purpose? You're going to be, you know... And even if you went to hell under the rubric that everyone else would go to heaven, what's the guarantee that that will actually happen? You'll be alone in hell. Oh, there's a fucking... That's a great idea. To be in hell is one thing, but to be alone in hell? Yikes. Okay. Well, you know, this, I, the, the full conception of hell is your worst possible uh, nightmare, which, if that were to be completely isolated, would probably that. Ugh. That's just disgusting. Anyway. <laughs> Even if you did, things would be no different for you. You would be in hell, everyone else would be in heaven. This axiom says nothing about this. I assume that what is colloquially meant is to minimize suffering across the board for everyone and everything in, ev in very de varying degrees as where is necessary and fair. Even if all your resources are bent towards this end, there is going to become a choice as to who gets more or less suffering that isn't clearly defined, and favoritism and therefore corruption enters the system. Then it is unfortunately flawed. If the system is flawless and egalitarian, then I see no problem. And to get everyone to adhere without question would be the main problem. As far as having a societal dictate to minimize suffering, or in other words, to have a logical instantiation of morality, it is already there. It has already been built into the system that is to cause suffering. That to cause suffering is to get more yourself, and therefore we have an instinct to minimize suffering for those already present without gnostic workarounds. This is why society has worked to this point to the extent that it has. Yeah. Well, that's this is how inequality gets shoved back into the system and how morality is essentially a way to dictate inequality to some extent. Um, and it's a weak one because it has to kowtow to force, <laughs> um, which is why there is no philosopher king. Back to the text. Another problem is that several other interpretations are as well as, an, as another. I feel that suffering is a little specific to our certain scenario, and if there were immutable creatures who didn't suffer, but still had problems of sufficiency nonetheless, we wouldn't want to select out these species in an effort to minimize suffering completely. When I was a junior in high school, about 15 years old, I thought about the problem of veganism very seriously and wanted to feel ethical about it. I didn't want to cause undue suffering to animals and cause them to sacrifice their lives for my pleasure and convenience. In an effort to mitigate the anguish I got from these thoughts, I adopted the following strategy. Since we didn't know the functional capacity of plants to feel pain, I felt that the baseline of morality in this case was the spark of life itself. Life was sacred, and all things that had to live had equal right to live it. This didn't make me feel any better about eating animals or plants that had to die, but it did make me realize that we do need to eat something. No living thing feeds off of inorganic material. 
so there is no perfect way to get out of killing something to survive. A way to mitigate this would be to choose a method that would cause the least death, the preferred fruit foods being eggs, milk, berries, fruit, anything that doesn't kill the thing in question to provide. Although this brings in a whole different conception of whether that's moral or if it's ending probable life is just as bad as killing something. Societally, it seems that intelligence is also a main consideration how we, how moral we take the slaughtering of certain fauna. The point being here is that at some point, you have to interject values into the system, also known as the naturalistic fallacy. The problems of deriving an ought from an is. David Hume. This shares an odd parallel with the thought above of life value being the token of sentience. I don't know if this is a simple rejection of dualism or full-on solipsism, however any further conclusion would be hard to come by because it always seems to come down to the, the few versus the many. Determinism seems to imply that no matter what, there is going to be differences in how people react. There are going to be people who perform evil acts. There are certain situations where it might be advantageous to do something you feel is morally wrong to climb the dominance hierarchy. We know from common experience that when people are given an out to do something like this, rarely will they be stopped, and only then by a powerful habituation to morals that were in some part created to make such aberrations possible to control. When our society is as open and seeming, seemingly egalitarian as ours is, it is hard to see a scenario where, you need to survive, where your need to survive becomes greater than your need to live peaceably in the dominance hierarchy. But it is not hard to imagine situations on the extreme edges of probability in which this might happen, which might mean that as long as there is personal preference, there will always be evil acts. There are the unavoidable earthquakes caused by the massive tectonic forces of our lives, and we are far from a stage where this will be ironed out. The problem is universalizing the problem so that after we derive the first axiom, we can apply that to any particular mind thinking. Why is it so hard for people to drop these preconceptions? This seems pretty obvious. Can we exist without the power structure that is derived from the concept of morality and its system of adherence? Morality is partially the movement of society becoming more egalitarian across the board, which is laudable. The problem is that, knowing how people are attracted to systems that help the needy, clever interlocutors have corrupted the dogma that with their selfish wants, bending the system to produce exactly what it is attempted to rail against. This is why one of the ideas that have allowed people to evolve out of the Stone Age is that decentralizing religious power, or power in general, is advantageous, and that allowing for a system of checks and balances that makes the system more fair is so important as to become one of the founding principles of many modern governments. The baseline of morality is what has allowed us to escape to this, sum, to, this to some extent, in the fact that we establish rules that no person can cross unless ex in extremely specialized circumstances. The top of the hierarchy has to have the consent of those below them in order for the system to be peaceable and able to be maintained for long stretches of time. There are two forces here, and they are in some, some of the most archetypal positions to be in, so much so that you could use the designations of communism versus capitalism and not be far off. One of these forces is the force of the masses of the proletariat. The, do the domain of this power is the dissolution of hierarchy and the axiom that provides restriction. This is why the Ten Commandments are all statements starting with do not. Every person has a part to play in this, because most of the people are not at the top, but vying for it. 
They have to hope. They have to hope. They have to have a hope of descendants. The hope that they can carve out a larger slice of the pie for themselves. The hope that they can one day relax. This ironically provides a justification for the hierarchy. Some people have to work, while other people don't necessarily have to. While others don't necessarily. Oh, I didn't write that right. But everyone must feel like they are doing their part, even though oftentimes they don't. This is the impetus of an a priori system of valuation, and this is what caused trade and then money, the distillation of value to a number. Once, perhaps, our culture wasn't so diffuse that this was a simple process, but now value is so diffuse that one is hard-pressed to guess at an, act, at an act or object's intrinsic value. We are so used to the, this thought process that we can only guess at valuation through the reverse process, a thing that is worth this so much money, therefore it is this valuable. The most anathematized acts are those that press against people's ideas of fairness, or the idea that everyone is being treated with the due of what they provide to society, and these create a stigma against the person. Anytime you take too much from someone who doesn't owe you, you owe, then owe society. The other side of this argument, the capitalist side, is just this process. As long as the process for acquisition is fairly given to everyone, then inequality can be accepted as a natural outcome of being fair. This would be absolutely true, too, if it weren't for a finite amount of resources. The closer we come to this hard cap, the more egalitarian we'll be pushed against, because the more clearly defined you have to have the hierarchy of distribution. These two forces can be summed by their ulterior motive, equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. These two things will always be at odds because not everyone in society can have everything that they want. Maybe the cessation of necessity is synonymous with the cessation of motility. Ultimately, the realization that free will doesn't exist doesn't change much from the individual. When taken as truth, nothing in life changes except for maybe your perspective. This seems to me to conclude that truth is not the most pressing concern of society, because it would logically be the most, mo most sought after and revered, revered. Everything we know in society is conserved, but my question is, uh, is as to the utility of this conservation. I believe that if we, made, if we were more intentional in, that, in the way we made our thoughts and societies, that it would be the greatest thing to our, our some well-being. Oh. <coughs> the unthinkable ways of evolution have worked up until this point, but my belief is that to reach the next step of biological endeavor, we have to get beyond the nostalgic attachment to our former selves and look towards a future of optimum brilliance. This is partially what this book is aimed at achieving, finding a way we can work with the fact of determinism instead of finding ways to deny its obvious existence. And that is the end of chapter one. Yeah, well, that is was the point of my book. And that is the question, in my opinion, is how we can get beyond the denial of determinism and understand it and live within its bounds and live within its limits because as as i stated before 
I don't think we can do away with free will. I think that to do that is almost impossible um, because we have to have a value evaluation problem. Um, and uh, this is what gets into what is the teleological conspiracy. And I'm just going to give you a little teaser for one of the future episodes about this. Um, because in that sense, what is the point of philosophy? One of the things that Nietzsche uh, brought up um, that was an interesting and well-made point was the fact that we cannot derive truth from language because language is the vehicle of truth. And he likened this to being able to stand on the surface of the earth and to look at the sun and to realize that the sun is circling the earth and not the other way around. Because, you know, that's why people thought that for thousands of years is because to us, to the, to our visible, you know, perspective, looking up in the sky, the, the sun circles around us. And if we go to the other side of the planet, it does the same exact thing. And so it seems obvious that we live in a um, terra-centric universe or a heliocentric. Or I think that's the sun. I'm trying to sound too smart. <coughs> but it took the effort of several scientists to very carefully study the movements of bodies in the heavens to realize that well, there's no way that we can be moving, that we, the sun is moving around us perfectly because other planets don't move around us perfectly. And if we're the center of the universe, then all planets should do exactly as the sun appears to do, which is circumnavigate the globe. But when they looked at the stars closely, they realized that they couldn't account for their movements based on these calculations. And therefore, they had to restructure the calculations, realizing that, well, if this Earth isn't the center, then, and maybe the Sun is the center, then it would make sense that we don't see these bodies going around us, but we do see the Sun. Uh, so it takes, you know, it took scientific observation and deduction and a lot of prying away of our preconceived notions and you know putting your life on the line to tell people who believe that their entire lives that they've been wrong um, to get to that point which you know it took a while and I think it's going to be the same way in in terms of ter determinism um, And, but I think this limits what is possible through philosophy. And this is the central point of the theological conspiracy model, is that <coughs> philosophy, like every other mental process that has, has ever existed, stems from the evolutionary need for the proliferation of these thoughts. Um, 
And, you know, we, we think of evolution in very simplistic terms, but everything of our mind is also dictates to evolutionary fitness. Um, so even the structure for philosophy has to be relegated to some degree to fit the idea that it somehow helped your position in society. Um, I think it's very indicative that f philosophy as being one of the, f the first, the primal uh, ability to abstract thought in certain ways, the, the ability to have a wise person who will tell you something that will be of use to you. Um, that, it, that this happened at the first time that there was a society that had a democratic uh, populace. And I think that those things are intrinsically connected because before th it was essentially all totalitarian governments. The, the people who had the power, who had the men with swords, made the rules. And if you didn't like it, then yeah, you could just get decapitated. It didn't matter. It wasn't until Athens came about that they decided that maybe we should have a different way of viewing it. Maybe we should have everyone be equal to some degree. To have, you know, oh, the soldiers aren't better off than the, the miners because they're all, they're all intrinsic and everyone deserves, um, you know, comeuppance. And uh, I can't say exactly where it came from, but it definitely came about in Athens, which leads to me is no surprise why philosophy would have appeared at the same time. And philosophy is the, st the stem of all other mental processes throughout time. Um, and the beginning of this, which is Socrates, begins with the ability for people to live off of philosophy. And this is what creates specialization in mental fields. Um, but there, there's a caveat to that because the philosophy has to be worth it to the people who are listening to it because the philosopher only, only can maximally philo philosophize if he doesn't have to worry about the other things of life, if he doesn't have to worry about, you know, working to feed his gullet or trying to find a mate or taking care of his kids. Um, although those things de definitely aren't seen as mutually exclusive, but in any, any endeavor, the more time that is spent to it, the more expertise that will be gained. Um, and so it, became, it came to the point that a person could live alone off of wisdom, as referenced by Socrates and through the philosophers of those times. And how would this be? Necessary. I mean, they're telling you things that are supposed to remove you from the context of a broken and unfair world. And this is exactly what they hawked to the people. You know, it's, it's what I said earlier, that you can give a, a line of, of justification about something that sounds profound. And, no, you know, people who even who listen to it very closely um, can find no fault with its, with its rationality. And this is necessarily because they cannot be as an expert as someone who does it constantly. 
uh, they, they won't understand what may have produced that thought process or they can't understand what may have came about to rectify that. So all the people who are listening to the philosophy are necessarily de- are u- deriving the utility from those thoughts and applying them to it. The, like I was saying earlier, you read a book, you, you basically take what you want, you leave the rest, and, uh, you know, hopefully if you're, at, if you're at a very high vantage point, you want to completely understand what, where someone's coming from. And that, that's why you read volumes and volumes of books and why, all, you know, we reference ideas so you can understand uh, the chain of thought, the chain of causality with the thought process. Um, So, I, but I, I think that that's why philosophy arised like it did, um, teleologically, is because the, the main thing that can gain, be gained from those people deriving the, their disparate messages, um, it's all pointing at a specific goal, because that the the philosophy's philosopher's logic has to be consistent for other people to latch onto it because once they see an inconsistency they could throw everything out um and you know socrates was wise enough um at least in in the way he was portrayed to apply that to his own life because he knew that had one been uh hypocritical in their actions then the philosophy would die then. Um, and that's why when Socrates drank the hemlock to kill himself rather than flee Athens, um, he essentially was making the point that his philosophy was more important than, than life and that Asclepius owed him a cock. And I hope he, uh, he didn't get a cock from Asclepius in the afterlife because that would be brutal. I don't know if that would be Socrates' heaven or hell, but we'll see. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Well, maybe, maybe no. He said he was going to sacrifice a, uh, his cock to Asclepius. <laughs> he told Crito, "Hey, Crito, you sacrifice a cock to Asclepius, please." He gave me my my potion, my drought for life, which was death. Seems kind of ridiculous, but that's why. It's because it was a justification for his philosophy. That it was profound. It was profound beyond life. And this is this is why philosophy naturally went into theology. It is exactly that. Because Socrates became Jesus. Became the avatar of God. And it's the same exact freaking premise. Just happened, uh, you know, several hundred years before Jesus was even talked about. 
Socrates died for the implementation of high ideals. And this alone, you know, especially if it was real, although I, it's hard to imagine it was, it's, it seems to be that this was a confabulation by Plato to prove his philosophical points all the more, which is a brilliant move. And uh, if, you're, if you're thinking in terms of the universalization of philosophy instead of the instantiation of personal philosophy, as I was speaking about earlier, then this, I would say this is, has to be the case. And, and I think that Plato was that wise, that he realized that he wasn't just coming up with his own ideas. He was making the best utility of peop what other people wanted to know and what, they, what would allow them to value that information. And essentially, it's to allow us to get out of, you know, the drudgery of life, to think that, you know, there's something within ideas themselves that is, is essentially worth it, you know, that, that uh, immortality can be gained if only the right words were uttered or believed uh, in some sense. And this is the teleological conspiracy. It's an arrow that, that's going up and up and up, and uh, they believe there's an endpoint, but, but it's illusory, but there has to be the hope. Um, because there has to be hope that no matter how high you get, there's, a, there's another level higher. Because uh, then it's a justification for, for every man, uh, not just the peasant, but the king. And uh, this is where I think it gets really cute with theology because uh, I think, you know, I, I think the entire Christian religion came out of one very simple fact. And it was that slaves didn't want to work seven days a week. Therefore, hey, there's a Sabbath day. On the seventh day, God doesn't work, nobody works. And so, therefore, now you got the first implement implementation of workers' rights inside of a religion. And this was a clever way of um, the, the layperson weaponizing philosophy to better control our environment. In that sense, I think it was a great thing. But nonetheless, it was, it's a utilization of an evolutionary force. And if there was no one who could survive from it, then there would be no point. And uh, this is what we're seeing nowadays with, uh, you know, the idea of having a uh, PhD in philosophy is a fucking joke. Like, you know, it is literally a joke. Like, if you tell people that, they think you wasted your, your life, you know. <clears throat> and that's, you know, to me, that it's because philosophy was long ago usurped by religion it was brought back again for a while by Nietzsche because uh, he appealed to people's need to hear the truth by telling them the truth. But I think that he realized that he can't weaponize nihilism. And so he had to, at some point, move away from it and provide some reason for being, which became his will to power and, you know... Um, master morality and all that, um, because I, I, you know, people say that the idea of the eternal return is an answer for uh, teleo teleology, and I don't really agree with that, um, 
because uh, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's saying that we're. It, I mean, eternal return is a statement of fact. I mean, so like socially, like the thing is, we see technology, and that's how we we think of the the progress of hu the human race. Um, but society itself and culture is a continuous cycle that just keeps going over old ground and, and shifting and changing and removing and adding things um, and just going around and around and, you know, going through the same cycles um, because it has to. I mean, we've we have reached a point where, uh, you know, our ideas don't have, a, we, there is no teleological end. And so, um, you know, it's like as if we're shooting a rocket, but we're not, accounting for gravity and so and we, we shoot up and then we throw, go up into the air high 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 and then it starts to come back come back and then all of a sudden we're plummeting back towards the ground and then we're oh no we're not supposed to go in this way we shoot back up again and that's what creates the eternal return is keep coming back we keep going up we keep coming back um and yeah This is where I'm going to say the part that I didn't want to say here, but because it's the very end, but I, it needs to be said. There's a, I tried ThinkSpot, which was Jordan Peterson's uh, platform that he's developed for free thinkers, which is all the more ironic because basically what I just told you about teleology and what I will go into more depth later on. Um, I said... Uh, in one of my annotations on Nietzsche's um, uh, Beyond Good and Evil. And I was very, very surprised to find it removed from the page. And I know for the fact it was there. Um, but I also know for the fact that it was taken away. And uh, it was it's kind of hard to justify, considering that, A, it was my longest you know, utterance at so in, in any other annotation I made after that necessarily referenced what I said in that post. So it would be impossible to understand my other annotations without looking at that initial one, which was far, far longer. It, you know, it was several thousand words. Um, and that's disappointing considering it was supposed to be a, uh, you know, a space for free thought and that you you know, wouldn't be taken down. But I could see why it might. It was an, an appeal to um, a dominance hierarchy, which Jordan Pearson is very against. Um, and uh, I know why. And I, it's laudable to believe that way. But I think that, once again, is a, an appeal to teleology. And you're taking people's money, saying, here's a hope but not pro providing proof. I mean, you're providing a lot of inter-social ideas that make sense, that are, that are manifestations of ways that you can be good. And, you know, I, Jordan has changed my mind in that sense in that I do believe that, that there is good in the system and that it isn't all just power, it isn't just all evil. But it so overwhelmingly is. And that's really the, the, the baseline, you know. Like, if, the, if there, there would be no good action if there wasn't for, you know, evil or 
you know, bordering on evil neutral actions. Um, there just couldn't be, um, because, well, that's interesting because, um, because it's, it's the power dynamics between the, the, you know, most basic forces that cause us to, you know, <laughs> well, it's gonna, I'm going to go into this later in my later chapters for sure. It goes into what I call a hierarchical bifurcation. I know I've mentioned that before, and it's, it's definitely one of those wordy phrases. But this is, this is why we, we have you know, such a variegated pattern of uh, power in our society is because um, once there, there becomes a, um, a critical mass point in society where uh, the people, there's, there's not enough um, definitions, there's not enough power hierarchies to uh, sustain uh, a, a level of happiness that, that won't turn into chaos. You know, um, I, there's not a whole lot of real world examples, but it, it, in like a thought experiment, if you think of a society like, like a Babylon, Babylonian society where you, you have just a few casts of people, you know, you have priests, you have warriors, you have, you know, kings, royalty, maybe not even that at that point, and you have farmers and other producers, workers. Um, you know, once you get to a certain point in population, you're going to have, you can have all the high positions in those, uh, those hierarchies filled. And then you're going to have the bottoming out of most of the other people who uh, are going to look at them and be jealous. I mean, it's the, it's the same thing as the instantiation of good action being that um, if you have alpha chimp over here and beta and zeta chimp want to take him down and they come together, then the alpha chimp loses. So he has to appeal to people in order to gain their trust enough to become in power. They can't just be a complete tyrant. Um, and it's the same way in this, is that <coughs> those hierarchies, they can't just become overtly tyrannical because the, the people below them will become so dangerous that they'll overthrow the people in power. So there has to be a balance. And one of the ways in which society has maintained this balance is what is through this process of hierarchical bifurcation. Uh, basically, they create another uh, power hierarchy that splits off so that people can be actionable within another power hierarchy. Um, so, you know, let's say the priest class decides, hey, you know, we need to make vases and we need to make tapestries and we need to, you know, we need to do other things. Uh, and then there, there, there are people that will become experts in that and that, the, that will create a, a whole new hierarchy in which to be judged. Um, so those people before who were dispossessed by the hierarchical system are now finding ways in which to thrive. Um, and this is, uh, you know, constantly a fantasy of our society nowadays. Um, it's always the, the, oh, well, you know, we, you just need to find your niche, you know, assuming that there's infinite amount of niches and that, eventually there's going to be something you find that is so conducive to your person that you'll naturally rise up in the hierarchy. 
um, which is laudable. Um, but the thing is, is that there's also a point that becomes there's too many hierarchies. Um, and this is this is when you see vestigial ones like like philosophy fall to the wayside, um, and you see other ones replace it, and because there can't not everyone can have everything, um, you know, the pie doesn't always grow. It's it's only so big, and uh, that becomes a problem. Um, that's why we have hierarchical bifurcation. And uh, that's why I think uh, Jordan Pearson is wrong in that, is because uh, there's going to be power. You know, there is always good systems, but it has to be nested within. It you know, good is a hierarchical bifurcation. It's uh, it's something that's allowed to exist because there's a, ne a necessity for. Uh, for another hierarchy to be actionable so that people don't revolt and throw over the people who have the most power. And this is the same with philosophy. And you can really see what power ultimately defaults to because that's what the higher, the highest power in the land always controls. The government has a monopoly on violence. This is what gives them their, their power is they have the ability to implement violence and they have the ability to control violence and they have the ability to restrict everyone else from violence. That's why the army and the police are both government institutions necessarily. And, you know, this is why we capitulate to societal or socialist ideas like that is because they're really necessary and they're necessarily to be ran by the government. And I think the other, the other government systems are just there as kind of like, you know, oh, well, this is most, you know, to, I can imagine there would pretty easily be a privatized fire department. Um, Although you don't—that's the thing—is you really don't want health and safety in the in the in the hands of uh, of a a, a corporation because then the incentives are going to get crossed, which is why I don't understand why we ever wanted to have a privatized medical system. Um, and I get that 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 having things privatized increases the ability to, of uh, competition and increases the overall product of of what you're doing, but yeah, that's just another instantiation of hierarchical bifurcation. Um, and then, granted, it has provided us with benefits, with higher medical, uh, you know, abilities, and uh, but it also um, has taken away things, and uh, must be controlled by the government for some reason. Uh, But I think that the good is, 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 does exist, but it's nested within the bad, within the power. That's why that, it, that, that government control of violence is the basic axiom of the land. <clears throat> and on that note, I'm going to end this podcast because it's been over two hours and I'm cold. So, uh, yeah. That was episode one of Apothegems of Anachronism, and uh, my episode two, my third podcast, and uh, I plan on continuing. Um, 
I have a lot of things brewing, a lot of things that I want to talk about. Um, the next time I want to talk about dreams, because um, I think dreams are insanely important, especially if you consider my idea is that there is no wasted mental effort. So anyone who says that dreams are just a uh, happenstance, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, this is a cool little movie to watch while I'm unconscious is dead wrong. And this is where I fully agree with Freud and his interpretation of, of dreams. Uh, or not fully, but I agree with him in that fully, in that, you know, he believed that the, the, our, the reason why we have dreams is because our, uncon our body is it must have uh, an end to the conscious state and even when we're, our bodies are, are completely uh, supine and immovable, we have to maintain action within our mental capacity um, to, to be unconscious. Um, and yeah, um, more on that on next time, and I will talk to you guys later.